2: at
1: 617-708-3241, or you can email radio at bnntv.org. I have a problem
3: every year around MLK Day, because Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for some reason, has been treated as America's civil rights mascot. On this day, you'll have folks who would have never in their life marched with, agreed with, voted with anything he believed in. One of the biggest, biggest in the United States Congress. He had the audacity to send out a Dr. King quote. The march has begun. Every day we rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, because we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start running.
1: I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business
2: with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly, how far apart we are on so many things, how they
1: plead poverty, that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of
2: dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. We
1: stand in solidarity, in unprecedented unity. Our union and our sister unions and the unions around the world
2: are standing by us as well as other labor unions. Because at some point, the jig is up. You cannot
1: keep... Kind of cut off towards the end. But in case you don't recognize her, she is the nanny. I am Sharon Hinton, the host of On Another Level, where we always try to bring your thinking, your consciousness, your information to another level so that you make good decisions. That's what I tell my daughter all the time. I don't expect her not to make mistakes. The only people that don't make mistakes are dead people and we're very much alive, but make good decisions. Right now, the actors have joined the Screenwriters Guild in a strike. What are they striking about? Fairness, if you work, you should get paid for your work. Don't manufacture a cartoon or some artificial intelligence to mimic my words, mimic my voice, mimic my face, and use me and my likeness and not pay me. That's what it's about. And so it looks like it's just television or it's just movies, but it is what we consume. And honestly, if all of the consumers stopped watching television, stopped going to the movies and stood in solidarity with the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, then someone would finally get some justice. That's what we're gonna talk about tonight, but we're gonna talk about justice in housing part two with Martin Vieira Jr. You got your money, you wanna hold on your money, you want more money, more money? Stay tuned and stay with us here on
4: another level. This is Jamal. Jamal is a boy who lives in a poor neighborhood. He has a friend named Kevin who lives in a wealthy neighborhood. All of Jamal's neighbors are African American and all of Kevin's neighbors are white. Because Jamal's school district is mostly funded by property taxes, his school is not very well funded. His classrooms are overcrowded, his teachers are underpaid, and he doesn't have access to high quality tutors or extracurricular activities. Kevin's school district is also funded by property taxes, so his school is very well funded. His classrooms are never crowded, his teachers are very well paid, and he has access to high quality tutors and lots of extracurricular activities. Kevin and Jamal live only a few streets away from each other. So how come they're growing up in such different worlds with such different opportunities for success? The answer has to do with America's history of systemic racism. To understand it better, let's look at what life was like for Kevin and Jamal's grandparents. Decades after the Civil War, Many government agencies started to draw maps dividing cities into sections that were either desirable or undesirable for investment. This practice was called redlining, and it usually blocked off entire black neighborhoods from access to private and public investment. Banks and insurance companies used these maps for decades to deny black people loans and other services based purely on race. Historically speaking, owning a home and getting a college education is the easiest way for an American family to build wealth. But when Jamal's grandparents wanted to buy a house, the banks refused because they lived in a neighborhood that was redlined. So Jamal's grandparents were not able to buy a home, and because colleges could prevent them from attending through legal segregation, their options for higher education were really scarce. Kevin's grandparents, on the other hand, got a low-interest loan to buy their first house and got accepted into a handful of top universities, which traditionally only accepted white students. This opened up a wealth of opportunities that they were able to pass on to their kids and grandkids. Even as late as the 1980s, an investigation into the Atlanta real estate market showed that banks were more willing to lend to low-income white families than to middle or upper-income African-American families. As a result, today, for every $100 of wealth held by a white family, black families have $5.04. A 2017 study confirms that redlining is still affecting home values in major cities like Chicago today. This explains how Kevin and Jamal inherited vastly different circumstances. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. A big part of systemic racism is implicit bias. These are prejudices in society that people are not aware that they have. Let's go back to Kevin and Jamal. Against all odds, Jamal manages to be the only student from his high school to get accepted into a great university. The same one that Kevin and his high school friends are attending. But after Kevin and Jamal both graduate, Jamal notices that his resume isn't drawing as much interest as Kevin's, even though they graduated from the same program with the exact same GPA. Unfortunately for Jamal, studies show that resumes with white-sounding names get twice as many callbacks as identical resumes with black-sounding names. Implicit bias is one of the reasons why the black unemployment rate is twice the rate of white unemployment, even among college graduates today. You can see evidence of systemic racism in every area of life. The disparities in family wealth, incarceration rates, political representation and education are all examples of systemic racism. Unfortunately, the biggest challenge with systemic racism is that there is no single person or entity responsible for it, which makes it very hard to solve. So what can you do? The first thing you can do is work towards becoming more aware of your own implicit biases. What are some prejudices that you might hold that you're not aware of? Second, let's acknowledge that the consequences of slavery and Jim Crow laws are still affecting access to opportunity today. As a result, we should support systemic changes that create more equal opportunities for everyone. Increasing public school funding and making it independent from property taxes would be a great start so that poor and wealthy districts can receive equal access to resources. Systemic problems require systemic solutions. Luckily, we're all part of the system, which means that we all have a role to play in making it better. Peace.
1: Systemic problems require systemic solutions. That means everybody. Everybody. That means you. We're live tonight, and because we have so much information with Melvin Vieira, Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, cousin. Uh, Sorry. (laughs) um, We have so much information. This is actually part two of the issues that we're talking about. Around housing, real estate, wealth transfer, um, generational wealth mm-hmm. You know, just you and I could talk a dog off a meat wagon. I mean, we talked about so much. We were talking in the in the lobby before we even got here, talking about the lack of transferring information um, in and technolo- in te- technology. And you showed me that piece about. Um, was it your nieces or something? Yeah, my nieces, yeah. Trying to get them to use like an old rotary phone, and they were like (laughs) looking at it like, huh, what am I, you know, and so, you know, and that's something that's very Mm. simple. It's in your hand. You can do it. It's very simple to explain, but real estate and wealth and that clip that we just talked about systemic racism, um, just the information about that, and so you have to have the history of that, and then we have states that are in school departments and school systems that are legislating against even teaching the history of that. Mm -hmm. So tonight we're going to talk about another piece that we didn't get to last time. We talked about the history of racism and redlining, which is some of the stuff that was alluded to here, the um, veterans benefits Mm. in terms of the the land allocation, Mm -hmm. the scholarships and stuff that didn't happen, and how at every single level, as long as black Americans have been in this country, um, there has been uh, legislation and policies, even up till now, today, today um, affirmative action being wiped up by the Supreme Court. Um, I don't want to even mention his name, but that man in Florida who's trying to mimic the orange man that was in the White House in, in, mm-hmm. his, in terms of his policies. So how do in this in this in this show, part two, and you and I talked about making this an ongoing series, which I think we have to. Boston has always been in the last 10 years, definitely Mm -hmm. top one, two or three of the most expensive place to live in the country. Mm -hmm. And not too many months ago, it was the most expensive city to live in in the world. So for these people, for people that have lived in New York or San Francisco or some of these places that are also, you know, the California places that are top one, two or three, why is Boston so daggone expensive to live in in terms of housing?
3: You know, that's a very good question, and there's a lot of things that actually play upon that to make that happen. Number one is that Boston is only so big as the postage stamp, number one. But number two, you understand, we actually have a lot of things that are happening within our society that are causing people to come here. One of the things is the education piece. Colleges are the biggest driver. We have about 10,000-plus actually coming here a year.
1: Also, Boston has more colleges and universities and hospitals per square mile than any place else in the world.
3: Exactly. So when you add all those together, all you're going to do- They don't
1: pay taxes. Payment in lieu of taxes, but
3: they don't pay taxes. This is true. So what's happening is you're actually squeezing and squeezing down the actual land, okay? So that's number one. The other problem is that we, as people, education. Mm. If you look at the school departments, okay, within the inner city. Oh, you going to go down that rabbit hole. Okay, okay. If you look within inside that,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and then, then if you just take a deep look at that for a second. Now, I'll say, because I went to Foxborough, it's Mecco. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Metco back in the early, say, 79 when I first got there, I was learning how to do Fortran and basic. When my fellow people who I lived with in the neighborhoods I lived in, the Dorchester and Mattapan area, they did not even know what Fortran and basic was. Right. Now that was in Foxborough, that was in the suburbs. Why don't we, or why wasn't that being taught? So I go back and say that education becomes the key to this whole root of where we are today, or one of the pieces where we are today. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, so land, education, and the value of where we are today is—it's it, it, Sharon. You ask why are we in this situation? Why are we are? We just need to be helped and uplifted, okay? But we got to help each other.
1: Okay, but and generationally too,
3: like okay. not have these gaps. So, so hold, on, hold on. So you remember we were out there talking about generation again, mm-hmm. and you kind of alluded to the AI. You alluded to the whole thing, like I showed you a picture of my nieces. On that phone, the rotary phone. Now, hold on. You and I were just using a rotary phone not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Think about when we actually were using the rotary phone and the push-button phone.
1: But wait a minute. You and I also grew up in a generation that had the Jetsons. And the only people that had cell phones were Batman, <laughs> Get Smart, right, right. and um, the Jetsons, shoe, right? right? He had a shoe. Right. And then he had a watch, right? right. But they were oh, that, fake. That, None that of was, them worked. Uh,
3: That was a... Uh, uh, well the, well, the detective guy. Was yeah, Get right. Smart. Get, no, the other guy, too, on the cartoon, but you're right. Oh, the, and
1: then you had Green Hornet. Green, Green Hornet,
3: right. right. With Cato, Bruce Lee.
1: Oh, we're dating That's ourselves. Whoever's watching That's all right. This. The fact that we're still here is a miracle of God <laughs> that I'm claiming. So, you know, I remember, you know, what we see now that we take for granted, um, talking to people, on the internet and being able to see this and being able to talk to people, right? FaceTiming. Then we call it FaceTime and and all this other stuff. But it was only on the Jetsons, and it was a cartoon thing. Mm -hmm. And so someone was dreaming of that. Correct. And someone was thinking about that. Somebody invented that, Mm -hmm. and then they had to market it. Mm -hmm. And they had to put programming on it so people thought, oh, this is for me, this includes me, I can do that. And then now it's the affordability thing. Right. But the same thing, I think, happens to the concept of wealth accumulation. Correct. Um, I was talking to somebody this morning. My father was born in Pittsburgh, grew up in Philly. He came to Boston, and he knew how to make money. Mm -hmm. My grandfather knew how to make money, Mm -hmm. and they always had the concept of, yeah, you may have to work for somebody else, but you should always have your own side money. And now we call it multiple streams of income, income, and that's the term.
3: They call it the gig economy now.
1: The Right, right. Right, and so then you also had the concept of um, hustling. We called mm-hmm. it hustling, but it was, you got, because we had to have an underground economy as black people because they only wanted to employ us. If we got employed in marginal jobs, did, you could not sustain a family. Mm-hmm. However, there were trades that were taught in the schools, and the unions lobbied that Preach. out of there. And so now our kids are sitting there being forced into college, which is using them as a product, and they get into debt that they cannot get out of through bankruptcy or anything else. And that was designed. All this stuff is designed. And so when we're going to tell our young people—I'm I'm, I'm preaching to y'all, where you at? Young people, if you've got elders around, pick their brains and find out how they got to be elders, what they did in their lifetime. I had the blessing of working in a nursing home with Nana, Mm-hmm. Um, at seventeen, mm-hmm. so I got to talk to people at the end of their lives about their lives, and mm-hmm. that was the one of the best things that happened because I was seventeen. It's like I don't want to be around these old people. I wanted to be with her,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and because she was working there and she wanted to be a nurse, which wasn't going to happen, but I wanted to be with her. But I was there and I listened to these people, and I had a different perspective because I'm thinking, oh, these people are old, and there's nothing that they could teach me. Elma Lewis's father was there.
3: No, you just said something. You said they were old and they couldn't teach you something? Because,
1: no, 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 because, yes. You because thought it,
3: they couldn't teach you something? I thought so. Ah,
1: although, though, uh-huh. as the oldest child and the oldest grandchild, that's all I did was sit around and listen to them. And that was at a time when you had the little kitty table and you had the adult table. But when I was the only grandchild, I was at the adult table because that was it, right? Mm-hmm. So I would sit there and soak it up. And so I would hear the stories of how our grandparents were traumatized down south and the great migration, how they had to come up, mm-hmm. how grandfather... Um, instead of him being um, drafted and everybody got drafted mm-hmm. because he was welding the ships in Quincy, he moved from down south to Pittsburgh and then up here. Mm-hmm. And then he brought the family and that was the move. And most people don't realize in the 70s, up until the late 70s, most black people had both of their parents. And I just saw this, I saw this documentary about the crack epidemic and how systematically this government dropped drugs and used the FBI and the CIA and the legislation and the Supreme Court to to break up everything that Black people were trying to get back after slavery: our language, our culture, our home, our marriages, our kids. And got to be so strong, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Wall Street rose. Right? That we became, and the unions. The unions mm-hmm. formed because when Black folks were freed, we had jobs. Everybody was employed. And they didn't want the competition. So if you don't know the history, you're bound to repeat it. And maybe worse, if you don't know. And with our kids, they're not getting that. No,
3: no, no. Do me a favor. Repeat what you just said. If you don't know the history. You're bound to repeat it.
1: Or worse, because you don't know it at all. And so the, the conversations that people, people are burnt out, right? Critical race theory. They don't know what that is. It's history that includes everybody. But there's an issue when you see that the powers that be in the status quo doesn't want you or anybody else to know what, what what really happened to you, to build this country to be as wealthy as it is. And so you have immigrants and you have people that don't know the history here who have been programmed through television about how they're gonna look at black Americans when they get here. And so they become part of the problem as opposed to unifying and become part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And so you look at this and so we have people in Boston, um, Hyde Park I think is the, uh, highest percentage of immigrants in the in districts in Boston, right? So you have people that come here who physically look like us. Mm-hmm. Their mentality is not us, their support is not us, but they get into positions that have been designated for black people. I'm going to talk about teachers. Judge Garrity mandated 25% of the teachers have to be black and African American. But I know that the teachers that are not in there are not that. And so sometimes they're more of a problem with our kids Because they're coming from a culture that still has corporal punishment or they're coming from a culture that's different education is different and then they're using those parameters because that's what they have but it is also still subjugating our kids Mm -hmm. and there's a lack of intervention because the churches 501c3s are not speaking up they don't want to lose their 501c3s Mm -hmm. you've got token representation on the school committee which is all appointed in boston it's the only all appointed did you hear me Boston School Committee is the only all-appointed school committee in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and we are the capital. And the last election, over 99,000 people voted to return to an elected school committee. Take that and run with that, but don't go anywhere because we still got a show. Now, for (laughs) these people that are looking at rental properties, if you can find one, one one-bedroom apartment in Boston is $3,000 to $3,500, and that's in the hood, or what was considered the hood. How do you and and the only demographic that has diminished in Boston is Black Americans, right? So how do you how do you stop that? The the
3: so. The sad part about it is the the horse has left the barn.
1: Oh God! Is the barn still closed? Any horses left? There are, are any of our horses? No, no left? their,
3: their horses still in there. But the thing is, we have to rally together, and have to sit together and have a conversation. If we don't rally together before it's too late, it's totally gone. We're done. We're done. So, we cannot be afraid because you're lighter than me, but we're the same. We can't be afraid to listen to each other's opinion, and we can disagree, but we have to disagree to, agree, to understand to agree at certain points. We right. have to understand that if we don't work together, and we can't be on our own separate missions.
1: Well, if we or are, mission?
3: divide and conquer, and we don't get anywhere. Right, but the problem is when you divide and conquer, this is the real problem. Sometimes, you, once you get in, you're in the door, and you're like, ha I made it in. And you shut and the you door. And you shut on. the door, and you forget that you actually are supposed to keep your foot in the door and keep the door cracked so someone else can run in. And reach. It. And reach, reach down and lift up. Because somebody did it for you. You, correct. I didn't get to where I was. Or be able to do what I did without someone lifting and reaching me up. Now, wait a minute. You were the first president. I'm the first African American president of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors, of the oldest real estate organization older than the National Association of Realtors. In the country. In the country. Even though some will beg to differ to say they're older than we are, but we're actually, we have history and So
1: y- now, So, okay, so now teach me. How did you navigate, because it wasn't an easy stare, how did you navigate from where? Did you see it and then go after it? Did someone pull
3: you up and mentor it? All of the above? All the above. So this is ironic. Um, I've always been a big advocate about home ownership and everything else and property rights and doing right by people. So I always did that on my own on the side. Well, people started hearing about what I was doing. Those who were sit in the Greater Boston Association of Realtors started looking and going, "Ooh, I heard. And I saw his name in the newspaper. And I saw what he did. And this was 20 plus years ago. They saw me doing things. So they came and tapped me on my shoulder about 12 years ago. Now, who's they? The, the, the executive director of the Greater Boston Association of Realtors and a few other people within the, the organization came and tapped me and said, hey, we would like to talk to you? I said, talk to me about what? We'd love to have you go into leadership. We'd love to have you sit on the board. We'd, we think that you'd be a great person to aspire and bring other people on. So when okay, I. Okay, ha- hold
1: up. Now stop right there. Was this a white person or a black person?
3: It was a white person. Okay, come on. So I got tapped by a gentleman who was white, another elderly gentleman who actually, when I found out his history, this gentleman, um, <laughs> great man. Um, he literally, when he was a school teacher down south, he had some students, and they said they couldn't eat at this place, and he got upset, and he made sure he was down in Hampton, and he made sure he took them and sat them Camp down to, to eat in Virginia, and they ate with him at this restaurant. Um, another gentleman who was, who was gay, who turned around. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this, for, I'm saying this for a reason. This was a very diverse thinking, but they were white.
1: Now, was this in the 60s, 70s? When was this?
3: No, this was just ju- just in the 2000s. Oh, wow. That I got, ta- oh, no, when he, or he did what he when had When he do. did what he oh, did. Oh, he did, he was in the 70s when he did what he did. Okay. Um, so when Paul did what he did. But when they, the gentleman who tapped me just tapped me, you know, like I said, 12 years ago. So when they tapped me, they had a conversation and said, Melvin, you need to do a couple of different things for you to move through. So you got to sit on a committee, and I want you to learn what's going on. So I sat and learned. Now, mind you, when I first sat there, I was like, what am I doing here? Because mm-hmm. I looked around, and no one looked like me. hmm I'm going to say this. After my last year being now, I'm now the past president, 2022, we just had a, a retreat for the new president coming in back in February. So when we had the retreat, we had a gentleman who was running the retreat, and he went around, and there was about 60 people in the room. And he turned around, and had everybody have a question, and the question was to everybody, was this. <laughs> Let me ask you what they said. They said, well, I said, what's the question? They said, tell us what was the most... Um the important thing, or what was the thing that you think that G-Bar did?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Or you did for J Bar, or what happened? I went. So after about 40 people, it gets to me. I stand up and grab the mic. And I'm glad we're getting ready to go to break, because this is the beautiful thing to say, this fact. Is that I stood up and behind the mic and I looked and I said and I looked around the room and I was like, as I look around the room, I see the seeds that I have planted. Mm. And now I'm watching them grow. As I looked around that room, I saw Latino, black, white, and this is is white, black, Asian, men, female, gay, straight, all the people that I had touched. Mm. I watched in that room, and there was about 60 of us, and I touched at least 20 of them to bring them in to the organization. And I watched how diverse the organization became. Because because what I did, but I also put my foot in the door, and I reached down, and I grabbed, and I pulled them up.
1: Mm. So wait a minute, let me go back to you. What do you think it was that you did, that you portrayed, that you represented, so that they tapped you? Because, and I'm saying this in light of the affirmative action stuff, because I remember my father pushing me to academic excellence no matter where I was, but then I would get in these spaces that I worked hard for, and they would look at me and say, Oh, well, you're just an affirmative action. Even though I had always been in the honor roll, always been in advanced classes, always gotten A's. So, do you think it, what happened to you was an aver- affirmative action higher that you got to take advantage of, or you were qualified and it was an affirmative action higher? Like, like, what was, you, you understand what I'm, where I'm going I with I just this?
3: believe that I was in the right place at the right, right time. time. And I believe that I was doing the right things to make people notice to what I was so doing. So now
1: let's get back to what were you doing that people needed to do to get you in the door and to keep you in the door? Because one thing to get in there, another thing to, to stay. I was trying to fight for
3: property rights for us. Ah. I was the very first person who was actually asked to teach first-time homebuyer classes
1: mm-hmm.
3: by Florence Henderson, Henderson, who was at Maha. She's the very first recipient of the soft second program, which is now called the one program. I was the teacher. They brought in her and Hilda. Fernandez asked me to come teach, and that was 20 plus years ago. Mm. So I was doing that and I was advocating all the time, talking about what was going on in our community. And not
1: waiting for the certificates, not waiting Correct. for the accolades, not waiting no. for somebody to recognize, recognize you. me. You just kept doing it. I just it. kept doing it. Now let's break it down even further. Because, and this is, this, is, this is for the young people, the people that have just graduated out of college who think, oh, I got a master's degree now, they're going to make me the VP, right? What are some of the things that you have to do day one continuously to be productive
3: and to be successful? You've got to keep kicking open the door and keep knocking at the door. Because and you've got to be on Out time. time. <laughs> Hold on. If you're not on time, you're late. No, if you're on time, time you're, late. you're late. That's true. Exactly that was right. IBM right. was right. if right. you're on right. time, time, you're late. late. Right. But my point is, is that I always kept knocking at that door. Mm. And I did not stop. And I had many times that I was frustrated. I had many times that I was like, dejected i felt like what was i doing why was i doing this but i knew there was a purpose and you know what i'm now 58 years old and i'm here talking to you amen and and let me just
1: say that he is my cousin full transparency but he and i have just reconnected yeah even though yeah. we're we're blood related and everything well, you know, my mother had 16 brothers and sisters. That's just on my mother's side. And then my father's side, they're spread out because mm-hmm. of the great migration from coast, literally from coast to coast, mm-hmm. um, north, south, east, west. And you've got to look at your family. I mean, the, the foundationally, we have to look at each other. We have to look at our family. We really have to look at what's important if you're talking about being healthy, wealthy, and wise. We're on another level. Stay with us.
0: Like many songs will tell you, Bullet holes left in my holes. In the, the story of what housing and other living conditions look like for many Black Americans is pretty bleak, and that's by design. In addition to artists cataloging their very personal experiences, it's it's been proven that the modern phenomenon of concentrated Black poverty was an intentional government-sponsored institution. This is in part why President Biden issued an executive order back in January intended to right the historical wrongs Black folks have faced when it comes to housing and home ownership in this country. But first, Let's take it back.
2: The dawn of the 20th century, African-Americans in major cities lived scattered throughout the city. They weren't segregated particularly. It's only with the great migration of six to seven million African-Americans north and west escaping the south, the predominant response of the United States government and state and local governments to the great migration was to contain Black people in their own neighborhoods. And HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, was particularly a part of this role. The precursors to HUD introduced and encouraged racially restrictive covenants, redlining of every major city where African Americans landed. The federal government was a sponsor of urban renewal, infamously called Negro Removal by the great James
4: Baldwin. Urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is is, is an accomplice to this fact.
0: That so-called urban renewal also included a federally-sponsored interstate highway system, which was intentionally designed to mow through vibrant Black neighborhoods. Take Miami, for example. Two highways, I-95 and I-395, bulldoze right through the predominantly black and low income overtown neighborhood, previously called colored town during segregation.
2: The Department of Housing and Urban Development and the federal government writ large in the first seven decades of the 20th century invested billions of dollars in racial segregation and concentrated poverty. Each time this country created a peculiar institution that subordinated Black people, slavery, Jim Crow, it created and dismantled it, they replaced it with another one. And the iconic Black ghetto, I don't use that as a purgative, I use it as a descriptor, was a follow on institution to slavery and Jim Crow. That's the legacy that every new administration inherits and the Biden administration has as well.
3: Today, I'm directing the Department of Housing and Urban Affairs and Urban Development to redress historical racism in federal housing policies.
0: This executive order is just one of four signed by President Biden, designed to address racial equity in the United States. And while this progress is a step in the right direction, there's still a lot of harm to undo
2: segregation started coming down after the passage of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, which actually only got passed in the wake of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. In 1980, eight out of ten Black people would have had to move in order to be evenly integrated within metropolitan areas. Half of Black people who live in metropolitan areas still live in neighborhoods of high segregation. So, We've had modest improvement, but segregation persists. And economic segregation has spiked since 1970. The so-called American dream is only working for a relatively small slice of the population that can afford to buy their way into what I call gold standard neighborhoods that have the best of everything. And everybody else struggles, and the Black
0: poor struggle the most. So what happens now? Well, some advocates are hopeful. Home applauds this executive order for really focusing on historical patterns of racial segregation and discrimination in housing, while others remain cautiously optimistic. Here's Professor Cashin's suggestion. I don't take credit for this, but I applaud it. There should be an equity analysis.
2: The federal government spends so much money, it should track who's getting it by neighborhood and it should pursue racial equity in the distribution of resources. There's been a lot of movement at the local level on this. I'll give the example of Baltimore. They did an equity analysis and found that they were spending four times as much money in majority white neighborhoods as the majority black ones. I think we're in this moment where people are waking up, sad to say, because of the slow execution of George Floyd, to the realities of systemic racism. And I believe there is an ascending majority, multiracial coalition that wants something better than a separate, unequal nation that overinvests in some neighborhoods and disinvests and preys upon people in other neighborhoods. I'm hopeful, but you can never stop working for and organizing for the country you want. Generations more radical and less tired than me, there's always another generation coming.
1: Thank you to The Root. Um, on January 26, 2021, President Joe Biden signed four executive orders designed to address racial equity in the United States. With one particular action, Biden hoped to right the historical wrongs black folks have faced when it comes to housing and home ownership in this country. Per a White House statement, quote, he will direct the Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, to take steps necessary to redress racially discriminatory federal housing policies that have contributed to wealth inequality for generations, close quote. And that's why the story of what housing and other living conditions look like for, for many black Americans is pretty bleak because it's by design. Welcome back. And my guest, Melvin Vieira Jr., who is a, a gem in my family and a gem in the community. During the break, you and I were talking about, here's the saying. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready, <laughs> right? Right. And so when the door opened for you, you had been getting ready on so many different fronts. And even though you were the first one and the only one, these gentlemen, because of their, sh- their experiences, said, well, he might be able to do it. Let me open the door.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You stepped in and you kept the door open so that at that, that dinner when they asked you what was your, one of your biggest accomplishments, you looked at a third of the room was people of color in a diverse um, landscape mm-hmm. of people that are reflecting the diversity of this country versus you being the only one, the fly in the buttermilk as they say, you are the right. only one in there, right. right? And so talk a little bit about what that's like to be the first one and the only one and the pressures of excellence, the pressures of you being, um, you being so good that you don't close the door for yourself and somebody else at the same time.
3: Wow. The, the, <laughs> so, thank you for asking that question, number one. And I thought about that several different ways in, in the past. And being the first one, I realized that I couldn't trip.
4: Mm.
1: You couldn't make a mistake. You couldn't be Could, mediocre.
3: Right. I had to rise above. I also realized that I had to be able to answer the question when the bell rung.
1: Mm-hmm. What does that Explain that. I know what that means, but so, explain
3: that. So when, give me an example, when the media would call me and ask me questions about what's going on in the city of Boston and what's happening, I had to be able to be, actually be able to talk about it mm-hmm. and be very articulate and be very precise about what I said. So I had to do my homework mm. and I had to really do my research and, and had to consult either other people or consult the the Internet and try to get that information so that I was very well read when those things came. Mm. But I also had to be able to articulate what I had to talk about when I was out in the crowd or amongst people. I also knew that I did not only represent myself, I represented over 11,000 agents within the greater Boston area.
1: 11,000? 11,
3: 11,000. Wow. There's over 27,000 realtors in the state of Massachusetts. There are over 33,000 people who are licensed with real estate licenses. Now, that includes the realtors, okay? Now,
1: what's the difference?
3: So if you're a realtor, you actually pay to be part of the association. Mm-hmm. So that means that you're part of the greater, well, if you can be part of the greater Boston or part of the South Shore, or you could be part of, the, but now but we make up, the greater Boston makes up 11,000 Realtors, part of the greater Boston, wow. part of Greater Boston, but out of the state of Massachusetts were eleven thousand. Now there's twenty-seven thousand total in all of Massachusetts. But get this: there are over one point two million realtors in the whole world, which is part of the National Association of Realtors. Wow! The National Association of Realtors actually lobbies and testifies for home ownership. Okay, they believe in and also understand that discrimination. Don't get me wrong. At one point there was that discrimination piece part of the National Association of Realtors. But as time has come and time has changed, they've actually changed the way the things are written, the way they're operating within inside that space. Okay. Okay? Now, don't get me wrong. That space just came couple, but 20-plus years ago. Wow. Okay? So it wasn't like it just happened overnight. Mm-hmm. But it did happen overnight and in, in, in respect to you and I. So mm-hmm. let's just go back to about... In the 60s, when we actually had the affirmative action and all of the things, it, they d- the National Association of Realtors did not change during that time.
1: Well, that's the same thing. Like um, the Declaration of you know, Emancipation came, and it, but it was like, well, but you my slave. you stay in here. Go- or they just turned people out, but they didn't give them any way to be independent and not have to come back and share crop the same place they were working for free.
3: Correct. But as time, it has changed. So I say all this for the fact is that now we are where we are today. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the thing about it is, is that I had to make sure that I understood the, the ethics and understand what they stood for, their code of, their code of conduct. Mm-hmm. And I, had, I lived and I still live at that code. Mm-hmm. And the code is to make sure everybody has the right. May you be black, blue, green, white, handicapped, disabled, you may, may, may you be gay, lesbian, straight, what, uh, HBG, all, the, all the initials, may you be that, you have the right for home ownership.
1: Home ownership versus just a roof over your head. And there's a difference. Correct. Tell me the difference.
3: Roof over your head is renting. Okay, home ownership is actually having it could state. be you could be homeless. homeless. Homeless, correct. You could be in a tent. You could be driving down the street and see the person living underneath a cardboard box. Okay, That's just a, that may be a roof over your head if you want to call that home ownership is actually owning something
4: mm.
3: now are we all meant to own no mm-hmm. some of us are meant to be transient okay and some of us don't know where we're going to be at that given time
1: and some people are not capable of handling responsibilities of correct. but
3: some people are also afraid they handle the responsibilities
1: why because generationally generationally they've been in section eight is that one of the reasons why or they don't understand the responsibilities. They and don't their, understand the responsibility. okay.
3: They don't understand there's a responsibility. you got to pay that bill every every single month, okay? and you got to come up with that payment. So that doesn't mean going to buy shoes or going to buy a dress, okay? You need to put and pay that money to keep first, your, first to keep the roof over your head versus going to buy those shoes or pay, paying that car or whatever. So
1: let's follow that 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 see, look at this, we've run out of time already. No, let's follow that we'll train of thinking that's right. When someone has been living, and that was another policy decision on the part of the United States government, to warehouse black people in projects and in housing developments because the racism, um, property owners and the banks and the redlining and all that other stuff that we talked about, black folks would get the money and overcome the barriers of the credit and not having the right credit and not having the amount of down payment and still buy property. And once they get the property, then they would get burned out, bombed out, um, it, hostile environment in the schools and most people a lot of people don't realize that the real estate also goes up based on the quality of the schools because people mm-hmm. want the quality of the schools to be good and so they move out to i'm not going no, to no 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 hold the first lawsuit the lawsuit about desegregation was really because of property we were paying property taxes that was supposed to be supporting education, and we weren't getting the, the black community wasn't getting the return on what we're paying in terms of uh, 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 property taxes. So people think, oh, is this segregation and buses? No, but it started around the housing, housing issue.
3: So there's an article in the Boston Globe that I'm actually quoted in, which basically states if the city of Boston and the, and the school system was at the adequate at the level that the actual levels are in the suburbs, our property values would be through the roof. Right. I'm quoted in that article.
1: But it's through the roof because of scarcity, right?
3: Supply and demand. Supply and demand. problem is, but are we really putting our money back into our school systems here? No. That's another whole and show. So, so we go, we're, That's we're, another whole but, show. But, but, let,
1: but, but one other thing about mm-hmm. the
3: property values, right?
1: Um, so we know that people, everybody, whether mm-hmm. they've got money or not, is saying that Boston is not... Um, affordable enough for all these college graduates to stay here. So you've got a brain drain that's happening. Mm -hmm. So you've got like Mayor Wu and different people that are in in the Boston Teachers Union that are trying to incorporate some policies or make some changes so that, um, especially around the Boston residency, like Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be a residency requirement if you're a teacher, if you're a fireman, if you're a policeman, right? And so they're trying to change that to allow people who maybe used to live in Boston, who live can, in the suburbs, to be, keep the jobs, but then the people in Boston who are here can't get those jobs, because again, there's this pressure, supply and demand, right. right? So if I was trying to move out of just renting an apartment, so there's mm-hmm. two questions in the 10 minutes we have. So there's two questions. One is, is a condo really home ownership? Because I just think it's a fancy name to charge more money for an apartment that other people have, saying that's the first thing the second thing is if i'm renting a place today how do i put myself in a situation to be able to buy a home in massachusetts
3: so so let me just go ahead condo is home ownership okay i will tell you this because yes it does seem it's a fancy and i thought i was thinking the same way back you know even though i sell real estate i'm like whoa you're just renting this apartment because i used to live in this place back but i'll tell you honestly if you have you take a three-family and you convert that three-family and everybody owns and has an equity stake in that, guess what happens? Now you have more homeowners in there, people who are going to willing to take care of and upkeep and take care of the area and the property and everything else. Now, don't get me wrong. Yes, tenants are important, okay, because that is the, that is the lifeblood of what goes on. But in turn, they're the ones, and they're going to also create value in that piece, okay, going through. Now, I'm going to go back to it in a second. I want to answer that question about is... Is there a way being a tenant to go ahead and can you buy? There are programs out there. You need to look at the American Dream program, okay, mm-hmm. which Mass Housing offers. That is one thing which will give you the down payment assistance, okay? There are programs, as I stated in the last program, that you can go on to the City of Boston website, Boston Home Center, and you can find those things. If you go to different cities and towns and municipalities, there are things there's as well. There's NACA. And there's NACA as well. There is, there, there's the one program, okay? There's a lot of different programs out there, but we need to go ahead and continue to talk about those. How important is your credit? Credit is very, very important. Okay. Very important.
1: Now, what is the credit rating you need now?
3: Well, it's six forty, which they're Ooh. still doing. Okay, um, but that's the lower bar. That's the lower bar. Okay, but that means you get a higher interest rate. Now, the thing is, the interest rate now is what
1: six or seven percent? Eight percent?
3: Well, I, 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 I usually do this when you double interest rates because they're they're so high right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> when they were sitting at three. But that was, that was too low of a number as well, okay? The average interest rate, if you look over time, history of time, is actually 6%. Okay. If you go from the beginning of time the interest rate first started to where they are now, yes, 6% is the number, but we'd like to see that 5 to 4 number, and that number will keep the pulse moving at okay. all times. Hopefully, when Powell and them sit down and understand when they finish doing it, we'll adjust. They're talking, they're holding and continuing raising rates because of inflation. Okay, I get that, but inflation, th- I just want to say this. They're using old economic numbers or economic data. They're using stuff back in the day because now we have the gig economy that's in place, which is, we have crypto, we have all these other things that weren't in when the economic playbook was actually designed in the very beginning. Okay, Okay? so don't get me wrong, they're they're doing some things right, but there are some things they gotta look at. I wish they would really rework. Just give you an example, zoning, another piece. We'll talk about zoning, housing. If we would turn around and change zoning and actually allow people to add higher, add one more story instead of going and say, we can only go three-family, let's go to a four-unit building, then we can add and put another person in that place. Also, if the NIMBYs would stop going ahead and screaming. Not in my backyard. That's not what a, a NIMBY NIMBYs, is. Not in my backyard and say, oh, I don't want a unit there. But guess what? That was a vacant lot which had a three-family on it back in the day. Let's put it back there again. Okay, now I'm going to stop you right there.
1: Excuse me, because we're coming down. Two other questions. <sighs> the CDCs and this, what I would call it, incestuous relationship between the CDCs and the developers. The CDCs came in to supposedly keep affordable housing affordable. Now it's something else and and i'm watching places that used to have like a triple deck or a two couple trickers now it's got 40 units 25 mm-hmm. units right um is that that's that piece right there is that a good thing or is that a bad thing i mean it's a good thing in terms of providing more because we talk about supply and demand mm-hmm. more supply but i'm also watching the same vacant lots up and down blue hill avenue are vacant lots that had businesses but they're being replaced with housing What does that do in
3: terms of this shift of a neighborhood?
1: Because you've got to have certain things to keep a neighborhood together.
3: You're right. You do need businesses inside that to keep it moving. You're 100% right. But the the problem is this, is that I go back to technology has has kept the older people alive, which is great. But the thing is, our population has exploded. Where the millennial population actually is the largest population today where the baby boomers were the largest population. But guess what? They're the parents of the baby boomers. Right. And the baby boomers' parents are alive. So when they thought they, the baby boomers' parents would pass away and give those houses up, that hasn't happened. And the baby boomers' parents don't need to leave the house because they can pick up their phone and hit an app, and someone can come pick them up. Right. Someone can go and cut their grass. Someone can go clean their house. So they don't need to move as we thought they needed to move. Okay, so we're
1: coming down to the end of the show. One, mm-hmm. one, one, ah, a break? Do we really have a break? Um, we actually do. I'm not gonna take that break because we've only got a few minutes, and I wanna ask this question. A lot of home ownership has helped people finance, mostly white people, finance being able to go to college. Mm-hmm. There's a disproportionate amount of people that have college loan debt that are black mm-hmm. people whose parents didn't have the luxury of being able to borrow against homeownership. Homership. What does that mean in terms of, you know, because when you go to buy a house, they have a... a Debt-to-income ratio. Debt-to-income ratio. And so we have young people that have a higher debt because of the student loan thing that they can't get rid of until they pay it off and Biden is, you know, and the Supreme Court and all these people playing around. How do you, what do you have to do to be able to put yourself in a position to own a home if you've got all this student debt, how do, you, how do you negotiate that? How do you do that? How is that looked at in the, in t- in the
3: eyes of realtors and the banks? So the banks look at it as debt-to-income ratio, so that, is your, so that means that you can't buy because you're... You you're you're, owe, right, owe too much. Right, you owe too much. And you should be at 33%, you know... But that's or, ridiculous because right, most is. poor
1: people are paying 40 50% sure. of their income, income, sometimes higher.
3: Right, and, the, and FHA is allowing that guideline to go up to almost 50 depending on your credit and everything else. So you ask that question. This, and if you can find somebody who doesn't have that debt, and if you two can get together and that person takes on part of it and their credit because they don't have the, the, the student loan and all that other thing, then hopefully you can do that. If you can't, then get with multiple people and form a group buy something together. Like a susu? Susu. Well, not even a susu. You just form a group and you buy together, okay? So, like, you and I have a conversation. You and I get together and go, okay, we'll do a contract. got a triple-decker. A triple-decker, and I'll live on one floor, you live on the other, and then go from there. And then eventually, once we build the equity, we pull down enough cash flow from the rent, then we use that down payment, and we go somewhere else, or we pay, pay off our debt, and we get it down. The thing is, we have to work together. As easy as it sounds, it is hard as it is. Oh,
1: please. It doesn't sound easy when you try to get people to go to lunch together and decide what they want to eat. And that's not a major investment right there. That's just lunch.
4: No, no.
3: And that's the thing is, you just said something. Getting together. Mm. And if you can get together for lunch and have a conversation, you'd be amazed what you can actually come up and do.
4: Hmm.
1: What does it take to buy a house in Boston now? How much money? how a credit rating all of that we've got like
3: oh two six, minutes, 640 minutes. credit score going through fha but a lot of lenders there's, there's a lot of different programs out there um
1: how much money do you need for down payment
3: well you can do the three and a half percent you can actually do the one and a half percent if you use the one program okay? okay um so that's what you can do there three and a half percent but now the question is, is how much money do you actually need to make to get to that level mm. okay so the average price point for a single-family house in Boston, okay, used to be around six something. Now it's at seven. Mm. Actually, they actually was what, like, let me take it back. It was almost it's it was eight eight oh one, eight hundred for a single-family. Then it dropped down to now it's dropped down to about six something. I
1: saw something recently within the last couple of days. It said the average home in Boston is about nine hundred thousand dollars, eight to nine hundred thousand. Well, it
3: was. It still is. It so. It, so it fluctuates no and the reason wh- why you asked to say that is there is that number okay but when you go back if you go back in december it was seven something and that's what single family okay. or? single family multi a different number um depending on where you're buying but the thing is you need to get together with people together family member cousin brother and last aunt, question we've got about a minute happen.
1: um oh geez now of course it's going to go out of my head uh, and that just means I'm going to have to ask you to come back. So one key point. Come back? I mean, so <laughs> <laughs> because I have, you know, we couldn't take phone calls, and I really want to take phone calls because I know there are people that are listening, they are watching, they are taking notes. They're like, oh, you got to, because I heard about it after the, our last program, right? And so, you know, when you're talking about home ownership and you're talking about wealth building and the numbers that say, you know, the average black family in Roxbury only has 8 percent, of wealth, and the average white family has $247,000. You
3: mean
1: $8, that's it. $8. $8, $8 yeah. $8 versus 247000 So this is to, uh, to be continued, um, we, be, to be continued. So how do you get ready? How do you stay ready to get ready? One one last, like, 30 seconds.
3: How do you stay ready to get ready? Continue to listen to this program. Continue to listen to us.
1: And so there it is. Um, Melvin All Vieira Jr. <laughs> Thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Take care of each other and yourselves. God bless. I, the
3: question was of the biggest, biggest in the United States Congress. out a Dr. quote: The march has begun. Every day we rise like the sun. We fight till the battle is won. Can you hear the footsteps? Listen, cause we're coming like a gang on the street. So you better start
4: running It's time for some action now Historical progression, generations march in succession Through 400 years, hate, blood, sweat, and tears And counting, the resistance is mounting
3: Genesis, pump your fist.
1: Throw your hands in the air just like this We are the another generation of fighters When it gets
3: hard, we charge
2: The preceding commentary does not necessarily reflect the views of the staff and management of WBCA or the Boston Neighborhood Network. If you would like to express another opinion, you can address your comments to the Boston Neighborhood Network at 3025 Washington Street, Boston, Mass., 02119. Attention WBCALP 102.9 FM. If you would like to arrange a time for your own commentary, you can call WBCA at 617-708-3241 or email us at radio at bnntv.org.